Turn with me, please, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1044. The last time we were in Luke, that was about three Sundays ago, we heard Jesus' call to watch out for hypocrisy. He spoke about a deadly condition, being clean on the outside but rotten on the inside. And in the light of this deadly condition, he gave a wake-up call. He assured us that someday, hidden things will not stay hidden. Everything will be brought to light. This morning, Jesus continues with a new topic. In our passage, his message is, don't waste your worry. We'll notice that Jesus does not say, don't be concerned about anything. He says, make sure you're concerned about the right things. Don't waste your worry. Our passage is Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 34. And here Jesus warns us away from two major sources of worry. He says, don't be afraid of man. And don't seek security in wealth and possessions. And in each case, Jesus gives us an alternative. He tells us what we should be concerned about. So first, in verses 4 to 12, don't be afraid of man. Instead, trust God and be concerned about honoring him. In verse 4, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus knows those who follow him are going to face persecution. He's already begun to prepare them for it. But he also wants them to be free from the fear of man. And by man here I mean anyone, man or woman, who might persecute them or ridicule them for following Jesus. Jesus knows very well how the fear of man can interfere with our obedience to God. He knows how it can paralyze us with worry and concern. But he doesn't tell his disciples to be afraid of no one. He tells them to be afraid of the right person. Don't be concerned about those who can do no more than kill your body. Be concerned about the one who holds your eternal destiny in his hands. If these disciples and if you and I could grasp the power and the authority of God, we would never be afraid of any human enemy. What power do they have compared to God's power? How much more important to please Almighty God than to please human beings? Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this, those who are still afraid of man have no fear of God. 
And those who have fear of God have ceased to be afraid of men. What do we mean by the fear of God? Well, for the man or woman who follows Jesus, we are not talking about a cowering dread of God. That might be the kind of fear God's enemies will feel on the judgment day, but it's not the kind of fear his people are to have. The kind of fear we're talking about here is the same kind the book of Proverbs talks about. When we looked at Proverbs, we came up with this definition of the fear of God. It describes our relationship to God, which is personal and intimate, yet never forgets that he is God and we are not. A relationship to God, which is personal and intimate, yet never forgets that he is God and we are not. If you and I could grasp that God really is God, we would live to please God whatever it costs us in this life. But at the same time that he challenges his disciples, Jesus also wants to reassure them. Those who fear God need not fear man, and they need not fear that God will ever forget them. In verse 7, Jesus says, If God even cares for cheap and insignificant sparrows, how much more does he care for his people? They are worth more than many sparrows. If we want to understand just how much more God values us than the sparrows, we only have to look at the cross. The cross where God's only beloved son died for our salvation. That's how much God values his people. Why is Jesus giving this reassurance? Because he knows his followers will face difficulties. In greater or smaller ways, his followers will suffer at the hands of men. And Jesus wants them to know this suffering does not mean God has forgotten about you. Sparrows fall to the ground. Hairs fall out of your head. But that doesn't mean God doesn't know. It doesn't mean God has lost control. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. He is God and we are not. We must trust his wisdom. We must trust that he knows what he's doing. What we must not do is allow the fear of man to dictate how we live. To get in the way of our obedience to God. Why? Well, not only because we know God can be trusted but also because there is a judgment day coming. Jesus has already hinted at this, and now he develops it in verses 8 to 10. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before man, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before man will be disowned before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. All these verses are talking about the final judgment. But verse 9 seems to have in mind those who profess to follow Jesus, but then turn away from him. And verse 10 seems to refer to those who never acknowledge Jesus' position. They never come to him in repentance. 
So let's think first about those who profess to follow Jesus, but then disown him. Verse 9 says, He who disowns me before, the, before man will be disowned before the angels of God. Jesus is not talking here about one incident of disowning him. If that was the case, then Peter would be in hell today. Remember how Peter ended up denying Jesus three times. The kind of disowning or denial that Jesus is talking about is a life of denial. Someone makes a profession that Jesus is their Savior and their Lord, but then they go on to deny him. And they never repent of their denial. One writer has described what Jesus is talking about as denial of the heart rather than denial of nerve. In other words, their denial is not just a moment of weakness when they're under pressure. It's a decision of the heart. Like Judas' denial. Not a momentary loss of nerve like Peter's denial. Jesus says there is no hope for that person on judgment day. The person who denies him in their heart and never repents. So verse 9 refers to those who profess Jesus and then turn away. Verse 10 seems to refer to those who never come to Jesus at all. And this verse is famous because people have wondered, what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? And why is it apparently okay to speak against Jesus? I think we can answer those questions if we remember when Jesus spoke these words. It was before he died on the cross. If we remember that, then the meaning of the verse becomes clearer. Let's think first about the second half of the verse. Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. After Jesus rose from the dead and returned to heaven, the Holy Spirit began the work of proclaiming the good news about the risen Jesus. The Holy Spirit did his work through the preaching and witness of Jesus' followers. That's still how he does his work. Jesus is saying to reject the Holy Spirit's work of testifying to the risen, saving King, well, that's to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. It's to call the Holy Spirit a liar, to deny the truth of the gospel. There is no hope for the man or woman who does that. So then, what about the first half of verse 10? I think Jesus is saying, it's one thing for you to turn away from me now, before the cross and resurrection, before I've done what I say I've come to do. It will be a very different thing to continue to reject me after the cross and resurrection. At that point, everything I've said about myself will have been shown to be true. The application for Jesus' first audience and the application for us as we listen to him today is this. Don't waste your energy worrying about what men think of you. Concern yourself with what God thinks of you. Concern yourself with the verdict God will pronounce on Judgment Day. Only those who respond positively to the good news about Jesus are pleasing to God. Don't end up in hell 
because you're worried what your family or friends or neighbors think about you. Don't be afraid of men. Instead, trust God and be concerned about honoring him. Your present and your future are in God's hands, not the hands of men. Jesus has already given one word of assurance to his followers. And here again, he follows his challenge with a word of comfort. Verse 11. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. When you have committed your life to God, you won't have to face trials and persecutions in your own strength. The Holy Spirit will be with you to give you endurance and wisdom. That's another way of saying trials and difficulties are not a sign God has forgotten you. As the hymn says, he'll strengthen you, guard you, and help you to stand, upheld by his righteous, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, his grace, all-sufficient, shall be your supply. Whatever we might suffer at the hands of men or women, God has the authority and power that count. Our present and future are in God's hands, not the hands of men. Well, at this point, Jesus is interrupted. Someone in the crowd pipes up in verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In other words, okay, Jesus, enough of this fear of man and fear of God stuff. Help me get my hands on some wealth. And Jesus uses the opportunity to give a second call not to waste our worry. Don't seek security in wealth and possessions. Instead, trust God and be concerned for his kingdom. Rabbis were often asked to resolve disputes for people. And Jesus is known and respected as a teacher. So it's quite natural the man would come to him with this kind of request. We can't be sure what the exact situation is, but what is clear is that the man is not really asking Jesus for an impartial arbitration. He wants Jesus to decide for him against his brother so he can get the wealth that he wants. But Jesus won't get involved in that. He refuses the man's request And then he points to the greed that is motivating this man. Verse 14, Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Greed is simply the desire to have more than we already have. And when greed gets hold of us, we begin to believe that our life actually does consist in the abundance of our possessions. How many people live their lives feeling miserable, but believing that their problem is a lack of wealth? If only they had more money and more stuff, they would be fulfilled in life, they think. 
But so long as we have that false sense of what life's all about, we will never be content. We'll always be pursuing the wrong thing and not realizing we're pursuing the wrong thing. Maybe that's the worst thing about greed. It makes us blind to what we really need. It distracts us from seeking the right thing. Jesus will go on to say that the right thing to pursue, the right thing to be concerned with, is a relationship with God and the advance of his kingdom. But first, he tells a story. In verse 16, he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. The most striking thing about this is that the man has a perfectly natural dilemma. He's been blessed with a good crop, so good that he doesn't have room to store it. There's no hint that he's been dishonest in any way or that he's mistreated anyone to get this crop. And he responds to his bumper crop by making careful plans. He doesn't want to waste the crop, so he'll build bigger barns to store it. And we might wonder, what's the problem with this picture? Well, the problem is not that the man has been blessed with a big crop. Nor is the problem that he makes plans for what to do with his crop. Planning is good. It's wise. The problem lies in how the man views his good crop and the way he makes his plans. He views his crop in a completely self-centered way. And he views it as his source of security. In three verses, verses 17 to 19, we find the words I or my 11 times. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods. There is no acknowledgement that God is the one who gave him the bumper crop. No acknowledgement that God may expect him to help others who have not been so blessed. And why is the man so possessive about his wealth? Why does he view it so selfishly? Because he looks to it as his source of security. Look what he says in verse 19. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. When we seek our security in wealth and possessions, there is very little chance of us sharing them with others. We're going to hold on to our stuff as tightly as our little hands can grip it. But on the other hand, if we look to something else for our security, to God himself, then we'll be able to see ourselves as stewards of what God has blessed us with. 
Our eyes will be open to see how we can use our wealth for the kingdom. That will change the kind of plans we make. We won't hold so tightly to what we have. Our security is not bound up with it. It can come or go. Our security is in God. The greed that we see in this story is a very respectable kind of greed. As we've noticed, this man didn't cheat anyone. He didn't bend the rules to get his wealth. In fact, this kind of greed is not even looked on as greed today. We've just got back from Florida. I don't know where the retirement capital of the world is, but Florida must be pretty near the top of the list. When you're driving along the highway, every few miles, there are billboards offering the good life, inviting you to live life your way. And I'm quoting there. Those are advertisements for retirement communities. You go to the gym in the morning, the pool in the afternoon, then a bit of ballroom dancing in the evening, or line dancing, depending on your preference. How many people spend their working lives with their eyes on that kind of goal. I'll work hard, I'll hoard up my money, and then I'll have plenty of good things laid up for many years. I'll take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. I can feel the attraction of that kind of goal, maybe minus the line dancing. It's not the kind of greed that necessarily hurts anybody else. It doesn't break any rules. It's pretty normal. It's respectable. But in God's eyes, it's obscene. It's blasphemous. And it's very, very foolish. Look again at verse 20. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. This man never made it to his dream retirement. He looked to his wealth for security, and so he had no security at all. He was concerned about his nest egg when he should have been concerned about his standing with God. He was building his life on a barn full of grain when he should have been building it on a living relationship with God. This man wasted his worry on his bank balance. But what good is his bank balance now that he's dead? Jesus has spelled out how we can avoid this man's mistake. We are to be rich towards God. And in the rest of our passage, he shows us what it means to be rich towards God. It involves trusting him and being concerned for his kingdom. First of all, Jesus says, instead of worrying about wealth and possessions, trust God. He will provide what we need. Look at verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. 
And how much more valuable are you than birds? Jesus says, don't sell yourself short. Don't put your focus on wealth and possessions. That will only cause you to miss out on true life. Life is more than all that stuff. And then he tells us to look at the birds, specifically the ravens. According to the Old Testament, ravens were ceremonially unclean creatures. They were not highly thought of. Add to that the fact that they can't produce their own food or store their own food. They're unclean and they're unproductive. And yet, Jesus says, God cares for them all the same, even for them. So then, realize how much more he cares for you, his chosen special son or daughter. Look how good he is to the birds. And you are far more important to him than the birds. If God does such an unlikely thing as caring for ravens, how much more can we count on him to do the very likely thing of caring for his beloved children? Men and women he singled out for his love before the dawn of time. We can trust him. The point here is not that you and I are to be lazy and careless. The point is we're to see how comprehensive God's care is. Working to provide for ourselves and our family is good, it's right. Worrying about providing for ourselves is a waste of energy. That's what Jesus says in verses 25 and 26. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Worrying about the length of our life will not give us control over the length of our life. Worrying about next year's employment doesn't give us control over that. Worrying about the value of our investments doesn't give us control there either. We waste our worry when we make those things the focus of our concern. Jesus has pointed to the birds as an example. Now he says, look at the flowers. Learn from them. Verse 27. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Lilies are pretty insignificant in the big scheme of things. But look how much care God takes over them. Look how much beauty he has given them. How long do lilies bloom for? Not long. And how often does a lily come and go without anyone even seeing its beauty? It goes unnoticed on a hillside somewhere and then it's gone. It's extravagant for God to clothe such temporary things with so much beauty. So then, how much more will he give us the basic necessities of life? We can trust him to do that, can't we? If God is that extravagant with throwaway flowers, 
Won't he at the very least clothe and feed us? Men and women made in his image, bought with the blood of his beloved son. So then, verse 29, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. Look at the care God takes over the insignificant things in this world, and then trust your life to him. However much he cares about the birds and the flowers, he cares infinitely more about you and me. And if you ever doubt that, look again to the cross. He didn't do that for the birds and the flowers. Trust God. He will provide what you need. And when we trust him, when we shake loose from our worries about possessions and stuff, then we're free to do what Jesus calls us to do in verses 31 to 34. He says, be concerned for God's kingdom. It's the only secure investment. Seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What exactly does it mean to seek God's kingdom? It means living to serve his will, not our own. It means living to further his rule and his glory in this world, not our own. It means taking up our responsibility to be his representatives in this world. It means using our resources for his kingdom, not for our own dreams and ambitions. And as we seek his kingdom, our dreams and ambitions will become tied to the success of his kingdom. We will take on God-centered dreams and ambitions, not self-centered ones. Seeking God's kingdom means living and working for the day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When we learn to make God's kingdom our concern, then we'll no longer be like the foolish man in Jesus' story, hoarding up all his stuff for himself. We'll be free to give away what God has given us, to be generous with the time and energy and money that we have, Why? Because we're no longer looking to wealth and possessions as our source of security. Our treasure is in heaven. That's where our heart is. And we know that treasure stored in heaven is theft-proof and moth-proof. Shares in the kingdom never lose their value. Those who invest in God's bank will never be ripped off. They will never suffer from a crash or a downturn. Their investment will never be mismanaged. It's never going to decay or depreciate. Heavenly treasure is eternally secure. 
So as Don Carson likes to say, choose your treasure. Do you want treasure that's tied to this earth? Or treasure that will endure for all eternity? And if you think you can have both, look again at verse 34. Your heart will follow what you treasure most. So choose your treasure. Another writer sums it up like this. Attachment to the God of heaven manifests itself in an absence of attachment to the things of earth. God calls the disciple not to care for things, but to care for him and the people he created. Don't seek security in wealth and possessions. Instead, trust God and be concerned for his kingdom. The king provides for his people. And only his kingdom will last. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that so often we pour our energy into worrying about all the wrong things. Often we have so little energy left that we can hardly be concerned to honor you, to seek your kingdom. Will you help us to trust you? You know what we need. You will give us what we need. Earlier we sang, How Great Thou Art. Will you help us to grasp the reality of your greatness, your sufficiency? You are the only true and reliable source of security for us. Everything else in life can be snatched away from us. It can crumble away in our hands. But your love and your care is the one solid rock in this universe. So help us to put all of our hope in you. Help us not to waste our worry on other things. What other people think of us. Or how much stuff we have. And then, Father, will you help us to take on worthwhile concerns. Help us to take all that worrying energy and focus it on serving your kingdom. Doing your will. Glorifying your name. Amen. Let's respond to God's word as we sing.